Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we chat about a low-cost magnetic resonance imaging system that could improve global access to neuroimaging. We also look at how quantum computers could shed light on how quarks interact. And we explain why complex numbers are best when it comes to quantum theory. But first, the physicist and writer Michael Riordan talks to Physics World's Mateen Durrani about the World Wide Web, which 30 years ago began its global spread from its origins at CERN. So I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Riordan, who is a physicist and writer in Seattle. Is that right? Uh, near Seattle. I'm on the island of Orcas Island, northwest of Seattle. And you said you had a lot of snow, but it's very wet and rainy at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's it's normal winter weather here now. All right. So the reason we got you on the Physics World podcast, you've just written a feature for the January issue of Physics World, um, all about the 30th anniversary of the first web server in North America. Now, that's an anniversary that perhaps might have passed people by, but um, let, let's wind the story back a bit, because most people associate uh, the birth of the web with CERN. And of course, that was a couple of years before. So do you want to remind us about what happened, um, the story of the first web server at CERN? Yes, the first web server at CERN was established by Tim Berners-Lee with the aid of Robert Caillot uh, at CERN. Uh, and... Uh, it came out of a an article he wrote or a memo he wrote called Information Management, a Proposal uh, in the March of 1989, which a lot of people take as the birth of the web. But it took about a year for the rest of CERN to come along and uh, give him the green light to go and write the software for the World Wide Web. Uh, he and Caillou came up with that name in the fall of 1990, and he proceeded to uh, program it using his next computer. Now, people probably don't know what a next computer is, but it's the machine that Steve Jobs and his company came up with after he left Apple in 1985. And it was an extremely powerful uh, computer with a point-and-click uh, graphical user interface, uh, powerful software. And he was able to do this job in about uh, two or three months, such that he had the website, the first website up by Christmas of 1990 at CERN. And of course, everyone uses the web nowadays. It's sort of second nature to most people. Um, I mean, what were your recollections of the first time that you saw the web? I mean, what what, what year was it, and what, what did you what did you think of it? Did you had you any idea that it would become what we know today? I had no idea whatsoever. The web uh, to back up just one month. The second website in the world was established by Paul Kuntz at Slack, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center in Menlo Park, California. He had been passing through CERN uh, and uh, met with uh, Tim Berners-Lee and also had a next computer. And so he could log on uh, to his own computer from CERN via the web. And he was amazed at the power of this uh, thing. And he came back and set up the first Slack website on December 12th, 1991. Now, I was away at the time. I was in Washington, D.C., working with the people who were uh, bringing us the superconducting super collider. 
for a one-year sabbatical, if you want to call it that, in Washington, D.C. And then I came back in January of 1992. And I just recall specifically somebody saying to me, I don't know whom it was, uh, saying, have you seen the latest? It's called the World Wide Web. And, you know, I, I didn't think too much of it because at that time, really the only way to access it from uh, Slack was via a Next computer, which is a very expensive device. It cost $6,500. Then it's like $15,000 today. So I did not really access it myself until later that year. Now, I should say that this second website, I, I contend, was when the web, World Wide Web truly became worldwide. Up until that time, it was a CERN phenomenon. It was used by researchers, you know, at CERN and those who, uh, Europeans mainly, who came to CERN to do their research. And it's, uh, at that time, it's killer application or killer app was the CERN phone book. But what, <laughs> what, what uh, Paul added into the mix was that Slack had this Spires database, S-P-I-R-E-S, that included all these preprints in high energy physics, you know, conference proceedings, which would not be published in uh, easily accessible uh, journals. Uh, and you could access them. Uh, you could access them easily from Slack, but not from outside Slack. It was possible, but difficult. And the web made it tremendously easy. And that became the second killer app, the Spires database. And, you know, the number of hits, uh, the number of uh, uses of the web, I think, tripled in about a month or two. Wow. So, so what, what you're saying is that up till that point, it had really been a, it had been called the World Wide Web, but it was really a CERN and a European thing. Yeah. 30 years ago, it came over to Slack and suddenly, you know, it became more of a global thing. And um, yeah. And obviously, the big advantage of being at Slack, which you mentioned in your article for us, is that Slack is in um, California, it's Silicon Valley, it's got all those big business brains. And kind of that was where, you know, the commercial world saw the potential and it really exploded from there. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm still tracing this out and I probably will write about it in future articles, more scholarly articles that uh, Slack was the institution that really brought the web to Silicon Valley, to Stanford. I mean, if you uh, go through the article, you'll, you'll find there are very short pieces about it. Uh, there's only so much I can do in a 3,000 word article. But Yahoo was started by two Stanford University graduate students in electrical engineering. Uh, and, uh, and then about a year later, Google was started by two Stanford University graduate students in computer science, uh, Sergey Brin and uh, Larry Page. Okay. And, it, you know, the thing was that Slack and Stanford University were right in the midst of Silicon Valley. And we had this, we had this venture capital culture there. Its headquarters was right across the street, right across Sand Hill Road from Slack. And when these Stanford University graduate students began seeing a lot of uh, use of their websites, they went over to, to the venture capital center across from, uh, across from Slack and found the uh, financing and the management skills they needed to turn those you know, fledgling firms into serious companies. The other source that brought the web to Silicon Valley was Mark Andreessen. 
And he was the one that created Mosaic, which most of us uh, really remember. It was certainly when I really began using the web was when the Mosaic browser became available. But uh, there's a story that leads into that that you, I can tell you if you want me to go there about Tony Johnson. Go on. That sounds intriguing. Yeah. Well, Tony Johnson was uh, another particle physicist. That was his day job anyway, like Paul Kuntz was a particle physicist. And Tony uh, came up with one of the first browsers. Uh, it was called Midas or Midas WWW. And if you had a Unix-based computer, you could download Midas and begin to use it. And it was also available on the uh, terminals that we had available to us at Slack. Uh, and that's what I you really used to become familiar to become familiar with the web in the middle of 1992. I used the Midas browser, and at that time maybe there were ten websites, including Daisy in Germany and the uh, Dutch uh, <clears throat> Institute Nijkerk in Amsterdam, and a few of the uh, a few of the major uh, experimental collaborations at CERN were beginning to have websites. All right, but there, there were there were maybe I mean I could count them on the fingers of two hands. When Tony Johnson put the his Midas software up on the web on a new website called Free HEP Free High Energy Physics, and Mark Andreessen, who was working then at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois in Urbana, he downloaded it. And immediately the next day, started sending emails to Tony Johnson. This is wonderful, brilliant. Why don't we collaborate on an upgraded version that has, you know, <clears throat> that can include uh, animations and uh, videos and and uh, all kinds of bells and whistles? And Tony thought for a while and decided that that would compete with his day job as a physicist. So Mark Andreessen went and got one of his staff members, uh, Eric Bina to actually write what became Mosaic. And Mosaic was what, what a lot of people look back at as the beginning of the web. But by then, the web was two or three years old. And how did, I'm trying to remember back then, how did people search for information? Because um, you kind of clicked from one site to another, or you went via the CERN website, as far as I remember from what I've read. Is, is that right? Well, you, you would, there was this phenomenon called surfing the web that became common then. This was before we had really good search engines. You'd go to some website, and of course, it would have a lot of links to other websites. And you just keep surfing around, going from link to link to link to see what you could come up with. All right? And sometimes it would, I remember doing that, and it would just go on and on into the night. And so I decided that was a, you know, not a good use of my time. And at the time, I was editing the Slack Beamline. And we actually got that up uh, on the web in uh, the November of the fall issue of 1994, which, by the way, had an article by Tony Johnson called Spinning the Web. <laughs> and you can access it through the uh, Physics World article, I believe. Yeah. And you're saying that issue of Beamline, that was one of the first or the first physics magazine to go online. Not, um, I'm not sure of this, you know, and it certainly wasn't the first magazine. The first physics of, magazine, potentially. I think it was the first physics magazine to go up on the web. Right. And I have to, I have to admit, being up on the web just meant that you could, you could find a PDF, a 
you know, a file and download it if you had Adobe software. To be truly online like we are now, I think that took another year. Okay. Or you just went to a link. And then obviously coming back to the article, the other key thing that you mentioned is that um, although the, the web by then had you know become a global phenomenon, really back at CERN was building the um, the Large Hadron Collider. And you know, you're saying in the article without the web, this project would have been really much harder, if not impossible, to sort of pull off it to time budget as it was. Yeah, then there were two aspects of that. The first, the, the easiest to explain was the, uh, the communications within a collaboration. And I use the uh, compact muon solenoid collaboration as an example because I know some of the members pretty well. I, I know uh, Guido Tonelli, for example, uh, who I co-authored a Scientific American article with on the discovery of the Higgs boson. And he assured me that it was essential to their work. You know, they could put designs up on the web. You know, you had, you had something like, at the beginning, something like 1,500 members. At the end, uh, currently about 3,000 members of the collaboration. How do you coordinate all that activity? You know, there's a, there's a, a wonderful phrase by uh, Peter Gallison that, that, you know, about uh, in his book, Image and Logic, about uh, coordinating uh, the, the actions of, uh, I forget the exact phrase right now, but coordinating the actions of scientists uh, uh, you know, as a in a difficult international collaboration like this, and the web made it possible. You could put up a design of your subcomponent, and others in the collaboration could look at it and understand how it fit into the whole. And managers could step in and say, "Wait a minute, this is going to conflict with my piece of the detector." Now, doing that on paper or by way of uh, you know, by way of email, for example, would have been much slower and much more difficult. The other aspect was in the building of the collider itself. I was doing the history of the superconducting supercollider, which became known as Tunnel Visions, published in 2015. But way back in 2000, I came by CERN, you know, trying to get another viewpoint on the SSC, the supercollider. And I had a wonderful interview with Lynn Evans, the project manager. And there uh, he had his tabletop display in his office, and he showed me how he could use it to understand what, you know, how the various components of his part of the project were doing. For example, they may, the magnetic cores, the superconducting magnetic cores of the superconducting magnets were being manufactured in three firms in France, Germany, and Italy. And he could uh, get, you know, instantaneous data online, not have to wait for a paper report or an email. He could understand where those were, you know, if they were having problems. And this is crucial in project management. This is where the super, the SSC fell down, or one of the places where the SSC fell down. You know, if something is going wrong with a key component, what's called a critical path component, it's, it's going to delay a lot of other things, then that's going to lead to delays in the entire project and cost overruns, which is what was happening at the super collider. And let me just tell you one last anecdote, if I may. While researching the super collider, I went to the, the National Records Center in Fort Worth, Texas in 1995, all right, to see if they had any documents 
from the uh, the recently uh, canceled Super Collider. And there were cubic meters and cubic meters of paper. Wow, wow. Just in, in a warehouse. You know, it was just, you know, and when I compare that experience with what I saw Lynn Evans able to do, it's just a day and night difference that I think was key to the success of the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah. And of course, particle physics is, you know, now a completely global effort. And in the feature, you have a lovely story about the first um, web link to China, which sounds bizarre, but there was literally a sort of time and day when that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Uh, turns out one of my collaborators, one of my, I wouldn't call him a collaborator because we had small collaborations uh, in the late 60s and early 70s in, in the group that discovered quarks. And uh, got the credit for it at the 1990 Nobel Prize. One of those collaborators was Les Cottrell, the British physicist who really focused in on uh, computer programming. He was the computer programming whiz for Slack Group A, which teamed with MIT uh, to discover the quarks and that series of experiments that has been recognized uh, for that discovery. Anyway, he became, I think, the assistant director for computing services at Slack, and in the process of that, uh, was trying to set up a link to the Institute for High Energy Physics in China, starting about 1990. And uh, that took a lot of uh, bureaucratic infighting. And we're talking about sending a lot of uh, sensitive technology to what was then and still is a communist country. So he had, he had clearances from the Department of Energy and the, the Department of Defense and the Department of Commerce on the United States side. And uh, similar actions had to occur on the Chinese side. Anyway, after a few years of that, they finally got a connection. There was a satellite connection from Slack or actually from Stanford to uh, the Beijing airport. And then they had uh, microwave links. And uh, finally, I think it was a copper wire connection to the Institute of High Energy Physics in Beijing. And on May, 4, May 17, 1994, that link first became available to China, where the Chinese could uh, communicate via the internet and via the web with the rest of the world. In fact, uh, IHEP, Institute for High Energy Physics, set up the first Chinese website on May 25th, about a week later. And of course, now, you know, there's all sorts of concerns about the extent to which Chinese companies have technology, you know, that powers the web. And there's all sorts of concerns. Who who, who would have known what uh, that moment might have unleashed? I mean, the, as you say in the article, the web has changed the world in good ways and also in not so good ways. Yeah, there, there's a wonderful quote uh, that I use at the beginning from uh, the British historian basically stated that... Uh, a new a new era began in 1989 to 1990. An old era ended. The era of the, uh, you know, the bif the bifurcated world of the Soviet Union, and the the Western world, and a new era began. And I believe that the web and the internet really powered this wave of globalization that began around 1991. Yeah, and I guess we're uh, we're still living through that. All right, Michael, thanks very much. And um, the article that you've written for Physics World, that's part of a longer piece that you're doing for a, an IP publishing ebook, isn't it? So that, that is that, that's coming out later this year. Yeah, I, I was told that uh, there's a book coming out from IOP Publishing 
called Big Science in the 21st Century. And I think it's uh, several volumes. This volume is called uh, Economic and Social Impacts. And I'm told that it's going to be out in March 2022 uh, in electronic book format. All right. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. All right, Michael, thanks very much for your time. And um, Thank you. Uh, and well, without the powers of the web, we wouldn't be talking to each other. So uh, we can thank no. we can thank uh, that first Slack server thirty years ago for our conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Mateen Durrani in conversation with Michael Riordan, and Michael's article is available on the Physics World website right now. Just look for the headline, Going Global, The World the Web Has Wrought. Now I'm joined by my Physics World colleagues, Tammy Freeman and Margaret Harris, to talk about what's new in the world of physics research. Hi, guys. Hi, Hamish. Hi. Tammy, you're keen to talk about a new scanner for the magnetic resonance imaging of the brain. What's special about this new scanner? This is a, a compact, low-cost scanner developed by a team at the University of Hong Kong. Now, it's designed to have low manufacturing and operating costs, low power requirements, so it can just be operated from a standard AC wall socket, and it doesn't require magnetic or radio frequency shielding. And, and I've, I've taken a look at the article that, that describes this scanner on the Physics World website, and it, it doesn't really look like an, an MRI scanner. There's no huge magnet. It, it is really compact, isn't it? Indeed, yes. Yeah. So tell me, why is there a need for a system like this? So MRI is an incredibly valuable tool for assessing brain injuries and diseases. Um, it creates high contrast images with no ionizing radiation. However, around 70% of the world's population has little or no access to MRI, and this is all down to cost. So high field clinical MRI scanners, which use 1.5 or three Tesla magnets. Now these can cost between one and $3 million. They're also expensive to install. They require dedicated infrastructure, such as magnetic and RF shielding, and they're expensive to maintain. So the aim of this new system is to create a brain MRI scanner that can meet the clinical needs of hospitals in low and middle income countries. Now, as you say, it's compact. It's got a footprint of about two meters squared and it can also be made portable. So it could be used um, at point of care medical facilities. So such as surgical suites and emergency rooms. So, so how did they reduce the cost um, involved in, in creating the scanner? Well, the key feature was to get rid of the expensive high field superconducting magnet, which requires liquid helium cooling. And instead, the researchers used an ultra low field permanent magnet made of samarium cobalt. And this is just 0.055 Tesla. So that's 55 millitesla. So that's one side. And then another important development was the use of deep learning to cancel out electromagnetic interference. So the team developed a procedure to model and predict external and internal electromagnetic signals and then remove them from the recorded MRI signals. And what this does is it eliminates the need to have to use um, a traditional RF shielding cage. And so how does the performance of this system compare with you know, a state-of-the-art MRI scanner? 
Well, to find this out, the researchers used their prototype scanner to image 25 patients with neurological conditions such as brain tumours or stroke. And they performed scans using four common clinical brain MRI protocols. And then they imaged the patients using these same protocols, but on the hospital's three Tesla scanner. So they compared all of the MR images and found that the ultra-low field scanner detected most of the key pathologies in all of the patients with similar image quality to that produced by the clinical system. So, you know, this is really promising. Um, another benefit of ultra-low field MRI is the low acoustic noise that it produces during scanning. So this is better for the patients. I mean, anyone that's had an MRI will know they can be really loud. Um, the ultra-low field is also less sensitive to metal implants, such as metallic clips or stents, for example. So this means fewer image artifacts and also there's less mechanical force on the implant and less heating. And both of these can be serious safety issues. So in theory, this makes it possible to perform MR scans on patients with metal medical implants or perhaps with accident-related metal fragments. And these patients wouldn't have been suitable for conventional high-field MRI. So the lead author, Ed Wu, believes that this ultra-low field technology, it, it won't compete with mainstream MRI, but it will complement it. And ultimately, he hopes that such ultra-low field systems could, as he says, democratise MRI for low and middle income countries. And uh, one final note, to help achieve this, the team is making all the key software and design specifications freely available online. Well, that sounds like a really interesting addition to um, sort of the me medical imaging equipment that's available today. You can find out more about this system in the article, Ultra Low Field MRI Scanner Could Improve Global Access to Neuroimaging. And that article is by Cynthia E. Keen. So Margaret, you've picked research that looks at how quantum computers can be used to calculate how quarks interact with each other to form matter. What's that all about? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, well, regular listeners to this podcast may be familiar with the idea that quantum computers can solve certain problems that classical computers can't. And there's been a lot of excitement about this in the physics community. But so far, actual examples have been somewhat thin on the ground. It can be hard to set separate the hype from the reality. But this latest result that we wrote about this week uh, actually looks like an example of reality rather than hype, even though it's still quite preliminary. The idea is that quantum computers might be able to simulate the behavior of matter particles, such as quarks and atomic nuclei, and they might be able to do it in regimes where classical methods fail, such as the aftermath of the Big Bang, you know, the very early part of years of the universe, and also inside super-dense neutron stars. And in the article we published earlier this week, we report that researchers at the University of Waterloo and York University have made headway towards this goal by simulating the behavior of matter particles and force-carrying particles within a simplified model. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, it is n notoriously difficult, uh, isn't it, to do these calculations, even with a, with a supercomputer. So it, so it sounds like a, a very promising bit of research. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really pleased um, to, to hear that these researchers are based in Canada. Um, uh, I know that Canada has has definitely been been sort of pulling out all the stops when it comes to, to doing research on quantum information. So it's really good to see that it's paying off. 
Yeah, well, I knew the Canadian on the podcasting team would be pleased about that. Um, <laughs> but the thing I want to shout about, though, is that the article was co-authored by Jacob Marks, who's a member of Physics World's Quantum Student Contributor Network, and by Amara McCune, who's a contributor to the online particle physics journal club called Particle Bytes. So Jacob and Amara teamed up to bring their separate expertise to bear on the topic, and the result is some great in-depth explanations of both the particle physics side and the quantum computing side. So yeah, go read it. It's definitely really a good read. It it is. It is a good read. And and as you say, it is it is sort of in depth, but not so in depth that you you, you get lost in the weeds. There, there's yeah. a lot of really interesting stuff in there, definitely. And and that article is called Quantum Computers Take on Quarks. And you can read it on the Physics World website. All right, Hamish, it's your turn now. So you said you wanted to talk about some research into quantum mechanics as well. Yeah, we, we recently covered three fascinating papers. I think it was three papers or maybe two papers and a preprint on archive. But, but anyway, the, the, this research looked at the role of complex numbers in quantum theory. And, and when I say complex numbers. You sort of have, have to cast your mind back to, 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 to mathematics courses that you've taken. And th these are numbers that comprise a real component and an imaginary component, with the imaginary bit being a multiple of the square root of minus one. Yeah, I mean, complex numbers are used all the time in, in physics. I mean, this, the famous Schrodinger equation of quantum mechanics is written in a complex form. So that's nothing new in itself. That's right. Yeah. In fact, complex numbers offer a really convenient way of doing quantum calculations. But it turns out that quantum theory can also be expressed using just real numbers, but, but the mathematics is a lot messier. But some physicists, even Erwin Schrodinger himself, have questioned whether imaginary numbers should be used in quantum theory. And Schrodinger objected because he thought that um, the calculated outcomes of quantum mechanics were always real things, like probability distributions. So it wasn't quite right to use imaginary numbers. Okay, so this is kind of harkening back to those philosophical debates about the foundations of quantum mechanics that raged in the, the 1920s and 30s when the, the people were founding the field. So have they now settled this question after what, you know, almost 100 years, really? Um, yeah, it looks like it, um, at least according to two independent uh, teams of researchers who uh, were working in China and Europe. And they've done experiments that they say that th they say these experiments show that the complex description of quantum mechanics is superior. And what they've done, they, they've both looked, they've looked at how both formulations of quantum mechanics predicted the outcomes of experiments done on quantum systems. And one of these tests was done using a superconducting quantum processor, and the other used photons in an optical setup. And it turns out that in both of these experiments, the complex version of quantum mechanics won hands down every time. And the physicists explain that their experiments are similar to the famous Bell tests. And these are, these are tests that show that quantum theory is always better than classical theory when describing an experiment.
So yeah, at least according to these researchers, there is some, I suppose, meaning in using complex numbers to describe quantum systems. So now that we know that the complex description of quantum mechanics is definitely superior, how can we take advantage of this knowledge? Well, I, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I, I would have thought that a quantum system is a quantum system, and <laughs> it doesn't really matter how we describe it. The researchers say that it could lead to better quantum information technologies, such as quantum cryptography. And I'm guessing that's because, you know, in these sort of quantum protocols, calculations are done. And if you've got the best possible way of doing those calculations, then your, your protocols and, and ultimately your quantum uh, information systems are going to be superior. Uh, you, you can read more about this fascinating research in an article on the Physics World website by Carmela Padovich Callahan. Just look for the headline, Complex Numbers Are Essential in Quantum Theory, Experiments Reveal. Well, that's all the new physics that we're going to talk about in this week's podcast. Thanks, Tammy and Margaret, for joining me. Sure thing, Hamish. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Michael Riordan, Mateen Durrani, Tammy Freeman, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. If you're looking for a good book, check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, in which we chat about some of the best physics-related books of 2021 including a warts and all study of the role self-publicity played in the fame of the late Stephen Hawking. And we also look at an exposition on how science fiction has helped society deal with rapid technological change. This latest episode of the Stories podcast can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Just look for the title, Physics Books That Captured the Imagination in 2021. Physics World.